0: Hey, it's Mark. We're coming to you on this post-Super Bowl 57 week, hoping that everyone, no matter where your football allegiances lie or who you rooted for on Sunday, enjoyed the matchup, as well as the commercials, which included a couple of pharma ads, of course, one by BMS and another by Estellus. And of course, there was Ram's premature electrification spot, where the automotive brand played homage to, or rather spoofed, depending on how you see it, every pharmaceutical marketing trope in the book as it plugged its forthcoming electric Ram 1500 REV pickup truck. I think the agency behind that spot may be getting some calls from a few of our audience members, and in non-football programming, we have a great show in store. Physician entrepreneur Dr. Daniel Kraft, as well known for his work in digital health as for his academic research in the fields of stem cell biology and regenerative medicine, joins us for a talk about the future of medicine. He'll also give us a rundown on the next Med Conference, which is slated to start a month from now in San Diego. We'll also touch on neuroscience biotech Amelix's operational update on the launch of ALS drug Rilivrio, following the negative coverage decision of one big insurer. And Lesh is here with a health policy update.
1: Hi, Mark. Today I'll discuss a growing food as medicine shift on the federal level where the Biden administration has begun allowing Medicaid to cover groceries and nutritional
2: counseling.
0: And Jack's back to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media.
2: Hi, Mark. Today we're going to be talking about The Last of Us, HBO's hit new series that has viewers hooked and terrified of zombie fungus.
0: I'm Mark Isco, it's Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. The future of medicine is in the zeitgeist these days. It has been for a number of years. Everyone wants to know what's next. If it's near-term, long-term, whatever term, chances are Dr. Daniel Kraft knows about it. That's because Kraft, a Stanford and Harvard-trained physician-scientist, oncologist, inventor, entrepreneur, and innovator, makes it his business to curate all of these upcoming health and medical innovations. A conference known as NextMedHealth, which he founded and chairs, explores convergent, rapidly developing technologies and their potential in biomedicine and healthcare. One of the meta-themes of that conference is that it's not about any one technology or innovation. It's how do you connect the dots among multiple ones to address challenges, so when I asked Kraft what innovations he's excited about, true to form, he named not just one but several different technologies converging. Here he is talking about use cases for ChatGPT and his vision for generative
3: AI. I get excited about you know not you know one thing, but particularly as we've talked about that when you when you mix them up, and not just the technology of what's here today, but when you think about ChatGPT. F- four plus and five, and where we're going to go with the soon to be the $100 genome or the $10 genome, or how do we combine all this big data to get to new knowledge and then actionable insights that can translate to the bedside or the website. And, And hopefully those insights are driven more by the power of the crowd, not just the traditional Ten-year-old double-blind, placebo-controlled trial. You know, we're now in this age of, of accelerated um, connection, um, but also have the challenges of translating all these new forms of data to insights into clinician workflow. You know, I'm a traditionally trained physician. You know, no doctor today, in general, or nurse or pharmacist, wants necessarily more overwhelming data from their patients. They want to be able to integrate that into a smart manner to to impact early detection, um, smarter uh, feedback loops for therapy, and maybe even as a tool for for public health. Um, so what I get excited about is uh, one thing I, I think a lot of folks are interested in, in, in is sort of generative AI. We've seen in just the last few months the explosion of ChatGPT and things like Dolly. Yeah. And I've been sort of imagining this conversion future because we you know we often have lots of data from our wearables and other bulls, but behavior changes hard in healthcare, whether it's clinical behavior or uh, or, or or the clinician uh, side or the patient side or the human side. So I'm almost imagining this world where with generative health and you know chat GPT four or five, et cetera, that will almost to create these personalized health bubbles that will translate health information to the individual based on their age, culture, language. It might be in the virtual environment, kind of the metaverse, or the metaverse, as I call it, med averse. It might be the <laughs> music they are play to keep them focused, the diets and nutrition and exercise workouts that are really going to end up being evidence-based, but can, can be communicated to the to the human <laughs> as a sort of health coach and bubble across their whole uh, care continuum. So that's why I get, I think it's an interesting sort of synthesis mm-hmm. of AI, big data, machine learning, generative AI, and you know, translating all this potential data and knowledge into action.
0: Yeah, interesting. I was going to ask you about medical education and later, but you, you talked about, you know, how it's um, hard to get physicians to change their behavior. But look at the adoption of, of generative AI and chat GPT and perhaps DALI as well. Um, but, uh, you know, you, we've already seen physicians jumping on to using chat GPT too. I, I saw in one instance to appeal denials from insurance companies um, for uh, getting their patients on on particular you know, drugs approved, um, and you know the, that I think in two months um, the uh, ChatGPT has has gained a hundred million uh, subscribers. If I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, and in five days it gained a million subscribers. So uh, really incredible adoption, and I'm sure a lot of them you know are clinicians. Uh, so we're seem to be entering a new phase where perhaps the stickiness of technology or the the, the hurdles to getting. People to adopt it may, may be going down a little bit. You agree with that?
3: Yeah. Well, we've got we're in this exponential age. You know, the conference I ran before, exponential medicine, thematically, technologies. You know, start to double in their power every couple of years, and then soon you go from one, two, four, six, eight, ten to a billion steps. Of you know, thirty iterations, and that's what we're seeing now with some elements of like Chats GPT. The question is, yes, they can now be leveraged. You as a a doctor now can start to code just with the help of of uh, generative AI uh, in, in many forms, or create a picture, or uh, maybe a, a communication. I tried this, you know, describe to a you know seventy five year old Hispanic male with you know an eighth grade education how to manage their blood pressure with these instructions, mm-hmm. and it writes it out in Spanish. So. How do we get those into workflow? How do we align regular, regulatory elements? Where do we get the FDA elements on some of these communication pieces will be interesting.
0: Another convergence point, the intersection of those communication tools like ChatGPT with the ever-increasing affordability of genetic sequencing information. Here's Kraft's take on how translating this technology into the clinical workflow could, in his words, make a needle move across healthcare.
3: One interesting use case, I was in uh, Dubai last week keynoting Arab Health and got to visit Abu Dhabi and the G42 sequencing center. I was there with former CEO of, of um, Cleveland Clinic, Toby Cosgrove, and David Rue, mm-hmm. the chief medical officer for Microsoft. And thinking how all these sequencing information is coming out, there's not enough you know, coaches uh, or, or Right. Um, Genetic counselors out there, how might you start to communicate knowledge and insights to to match the patient, whether they speak Arabic, Italian, or um, English, uh, using this convergence of now cheap sequencing information, the insights, and the ability to translate that so the individual, the family can can take action on it? That's an interesting um, convergence point. So I think we're going to see the challenge of going from technology to adoption to workflow, but it, it is accelerating. If we can Leverage the right mindsets and the right incentives, so that these key, that these sometimes exciting and powerful, and sometimes even dangerous technologies can really make a, a, a needle move across healthcare.
0: Yeah, I was just just to triangulate that. I was speaking with the CEO of Element Biosciences, and they announced that. Uh, $200 or $100? $100, $100, I think, genome. Um, and she was saying, really, like you just said, the rate limiting factor is not the the, the cost, which is coming down. You know, we're slashing prices pretty rapidly. Who knows? We might get to $10 um, pretty soon. But it's, it's more that the interpretation and the, and the amount of genetic counselors to interpret that for people, whether it's whole genome or, or targeted panels um, for, for that. But that's also you know some very exciting technology. I'm wondering if one day we're going to see every doctor's office has a genetics sequencer on the desktop? Well, you won't need one because hopefully
3: every, everyone's going to get sequenced before birth. I mean, that's what's starting to happen, like with NPT, uh, not just checking for downs and other uh, genetic health issues, but be able to do a full readout and you'll have your sort of polygenic risk scores in the hands of your pediatrician shortly after you're delivered. That's almost Gattaca. If, if folks haven't seen that <laughs> 25-year-old movie, it was very insightful. Um, but uh, I think, you know along this line, you know, we now have tremendous amounts of new forms of data, not just the genome. We've got the the metabolome from wearable CGM devices. We've got the microbiome, which is obviously changing. We have the proteome, the sociome. So, And often, this is now, it's a bit buzzwordy, but, you know, can leverage into this moving realm of the digital twin, right? The digital twin Mm -hmm. could be Mm -hmm. up in the operating room. It might be one for, again, predicting early in life, putting on my pediatrician hat, what that individual's at risk for. So you know they're at much higher risk of type two diabetes given their genetics and maybe their environment. You can modulate things early, especially diet, nutrition, other changes between zero and five years old makes a huge difference downstream. um, and I'm hopeful that we'll start to see this sort of digital twin element integrate into our, what are still very clunky fax machine based EMR, you know, billing machine type interfaces that hinder the clinical experience. And so imagine when you, if I'm seeing you mark in clinic and let's say you need something as simple as a new statin um, based on your risk factors and cholesterol. I'm not just going to pick, you know, the 40 milligrams of a torostatin. I'm going to know from your pharmacogenomics that we should pick Simvastatin at 10 milligrams. And I've got a whole mm-hmm. panel and database of Patients like you, uh, maybe it comes from a platform, one out of Israel, built by one of the founders of Waze called Stuff That Works, stuff that works health, that's crowdsourcing knowledge from patients, and that will need to flow into our clinical decision making. So just like we use Google Maps or Waze, when we drive for just in time, hyper local information, we'll be able to sort of synthesize that along with sort of the digital twin and other information to really make the right decisions, not just for disease, but for precision wellness, for very early detection and diagnostics, and of course, for managing everything from COPD to cancer to mental health.
0: So Kraft is obviously big on the future of medicine and healthcare, but that doesn't mean he's divorced from reality. Healthcare is hard and solving it is a team sport. I asked him about the challenges of integrating technology.
3: Well, one is both Medical culture and mindset. So at next med health, we'll have back the uh, head of NHS, National Health Service England innovation, Tony Young, who also um, founded the clinician entrepreneurs program there. And he shared at our last conference this old quote, um, which I'm. Going to summarize It's like the challenge often isn't isn't is not the new ideas but escaping from the old ones and I think a lot of folks in healthcare even biotech biopharma health systems are stuck in the old ways of doing things and now as accelerated by the pandemic and I have a whole recent TED talk on how COVID catalyzed the future of medicine right we're now in the era of more telehealth and faster vaccine development etc but you know we still think in realms of clinical workflows with fax machines and waiting rooms, and um, don't appreciate the power of using a simple wearable to track someone's health, you know, someone's baseline data doesn't need to be FDA cleared. Uh, Fitbit can still tell whether someone's doing well or not after a uh, hip surgery, for example. So I think there's a new generation of clinicians that are digital natives. I'm somewhere in between, and the challenges are often translating the, in, these new innovations into workflow, getting them paid for by the payers, whether it's Medicare or NHS or or Kaiser, um, and so that we kind of align them with the whole clinical health experience and. And move more towards prevention and wellness, not just the sick care side of the equation.
0: Bringing our fascinating conversation to a close, I then asked Dr. Kraft for a rundown on his upcoming conference, which, considering its diverse faculty and attendees, is a great place to discover this convergence.
3: Yeah. So NextMed Health, which is March 13th to 16th at the Magical Hotel Del Coronado in San Diego, is the evolution of exponential medicine, which I've run there for a decade. Kind of shifting from just exponential technology to kind of what's now, near, and next. And not just the what's new, but the... Sort of how to how to convert these things to clinical impact. So, over four days we have I mean an incredible line of faculty ranging from Leroy Hood, you know the co-founder of the you know foundation of P four Medicine Systems Biology. He's now working on our precision wellness and phenomics, kind of that layering of data to 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 create that digital twin. We'll have Mike Snyder at Stanford, the chair of genetics who runs their innovation lab, It just did some amazing work on multi-omics of blood blood drops from his finger with wearable data to give really long-term insights. So Nickel Blackwood, the chair of Genomics England, is doing incredible work on you know, crowd-thrusting genomics. And folks outside the normal sphere, like Paul Stamets, talking uh, about psychedelics and psilocybin and its impact in healthcare from treating PTSD to addiction. And some other you know, folks at the interface, like Ron Ballester, who runs innovation for Khalid out of Israel, that led a lot of the work in doing insights um, around vaccine uh, uh, work and what works and what didn't. And that spread around the world for the Pfizer vaccine. Um, David Eagleman on neuroscience. Uh, Alistair M- Martin, former uh White House fellow who's doing a lot of work on health equity. Just a, a broad array of folks who are really not just cutting edge, but also bringing communities and technologies and, and going from insights to action. And we're we'll looking at, at everything from AI and drug discovery with Alex Zagorov from in Silica Medicine, future of augmented virtual reality in the operating room with Shafi Ahmed and David Fagenbaum. Uh, the view Penn, who's kind of been pioneering you know chasing his own cure for castleman's disease so it's a real diverse array if you check out slash faculty you'll get a flavor um, and it's the kind of place for folks to come discover that convergence and what's you know happening on the cusp and what likely is happening in two five and ten years and their implications for their healthcare practice their biopharma endeavor their new startup uh, their healthcare system um, and also meeting Folks from across, you know, we usually have like 30 plus countries there, uh, cross fertilizing across the planet.
0: Yeah. Great. So check it out nextmed.health, uh, to see the full agenda and speaker lists. Uh, very exciting indeed. Sounds like a wonderful experience. And Dr. Kraft, thank you so much for joining us today. This is fascinating.
3: A real honor to, to be with you. And I would just, you know, as a, as a parting thought to everyone mm-hmm. listening, we, you know, I've I've been sort of branded a healthcare futurist. I say I'm more I'm more of a healthcare nowist. I mean, it's <laughs> like, what can we do now? And what problems do you see that you can play a role in solving? So, you know, healthcare is hard. Solving healthcare solutions is a team sport. And you don't need to be a startup founder or CEO of a biopharma company to go, I see a clinical problem or any kind of healthcare problem. And think, how might I solve that? Not just with the tools of today, which are pretty incredible, AI, robotics, 3D printing, nanotech, genomics, blockchain, et cetera. um, But how might that be solved, you know, in the next couple of years? And how do I bring the right folks together from these different often siloed areas, you know, video games for mental health, you know, chat bots that are used for, for, you know, commerce, you know, and pull them together. Maybe it's your high school kid who can build an app to start solving those problems and start to bringing them into the, into the, not just the health side, but the, the medical side and, and, and empower all of us.
0: And in other news, last week, Jack, you reported that with regards to ALS drug relivrio, commercial insurer Cygnus said it wouldn't cover the drug. As justification for its decision, the insurer cited a lack of clinical efficacy data and unclear clinical benefit. That coincided with Wall Street chatter, subsequently dismissed by some analysts as mere street noise. That, given Cigna's negative coverage decision, that others and other insurers were sure to follow suit. Well, on Tuesday of this week, MLX went on the offensive. The co-founders issued an SEC filing, saying the launch was going better than expected, and pointed out during an investor presentation that insurers representing about a quarter of covered lives in the U.S. have published coverage decisions providing broad access to Olivia asked about the refusal by an analyst from SVB Securities, which hosted the Investor Update. Co-CEO Justin Klee pointed out that Cigna represents only about 3% of covered lives in the U.S. He said the payer is quote-unquote clearly an outlier compared to other plans providing broad access. That said, since the FDA approved the drug for treating ALS in September, this drug has been plagued by ongoing concerns over its clinical efficacy as well as its steep price point. Amalek set the wholesale acquisition cost of the drug at $158,000 per year, which is slightly lower than the $160,000 cost of Radicava, which is the uh, competing drug by Mitsubishi Tanabe Pharma. But for now, it seems Tuesday's operational update may have put to rest the questions about the commercial launch of Relivrio in the U.S. But, Jack, are there any other outstanding questions in your mind?
2: It's not an outstanding question as much as it more is a comment. You know, in my past life, before I joined MM&M, I had covered the Payer and provider beat, and I was always astounded at how much sway the payer community had. So when this ruling came out from Cigna that they weren't going to cover Relivrio, it kind of struck me as, oh wow, they've made a decision. There could be ramifications, but in reading your reporting, Mark, where you talked to an analyst who said that this probably won't have ripple effects in terms of how other insurers are going to uh, respond, as well as seeing Relivrio basically calling out or to your point, going on the offensive against Cigna, it just kind of caught my eye in that way, given that Cigna is one of the five largest insurers. But again, they only cover 3% of covered lives as it relates to this ALS patient community.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a fair point to, um, you know, not cite the 3% uh, or or to look at the flip side of the 3% is, you know, obviously Amalek's wanted to, you know, muster that stat to, you know, kind of diminish, if you will, the influence of Cigna, uh, but as you and I were talking about, and you pointed out offline, you know, Cigna is a major insurer, and what it does uh, is it can be influential to, to other insurers. Uh, but you know, yes, the analysts that I uh, cited uh, last week put a note out, whomer um, um, Ruffett from uh, Evercore, you know, saying that you know let's let's not just assume that because one insurer you know put out this negative coverage decision. Uh, that others are sure to follow suit because, as he pointed out, uh, there was a big contradiction in its ruling there in, in terms of the fact that uh, you know its justification, obviously, as we said, uh, was because of that two-point benefit. But another drug that they do cover, Radicava, the infusion drug from Mitsubishi, they do deem that medically necessary. So, he felt that their communications, if you will, were, were contradictory. So, uh, at any rate, it does seem like the operational update, if nothing else, does, um, you know, quell some of the uh, concerns about the launch, at least going going forward.
2: And we'll be sure to keep an eye on it. I know that much. Yes, we will.
0: Health Policy Update with Lesha Bushak.
1: In recent years, the Biden administration has begun approving state requests to allow Medicaid to cover more than just health care costs, some states like Oregon, Arkansas, North Carolina have launched programs where Medicaid can pay for healthy food for patients who need it. Some programs bring personalized meals to hospitalized patients or people with specific medical needs in which a healthy diet is an important part of their health care. Other programs would provide vouchers for healthy food items, but not junk food. The idea is not only to help people develop healthier eating habits as preventive care, but also to help reduce medical costs. Research from the CDC has shown that people who face food insecurity generally have higher health care costs than people who don't. Another recent study from Tufts University found that medically tailored meals that help reduce chronic illnesses could save the U.S. more than $13 billion per year. It's another step in the evolution of Medicaid from covering solely medical services and shifting more to addressing social determinants of health. In addition to food, some Medicaid pilot programs have also begun paying for air conditioners to battle heat and filtration devices to improve air quality. I'm Lesha Bouchak, senior reporter at MM MMM. Social media. Instagram. Instagram,
2: TikTok, TikTok. Twitter. YouTube.
1: Social media update.
0: And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending on healthcare social media. Hey,
2: Jack. Hey there, Mark. So I'm sure you and Lesha might already know this, but if there's one piece of non-football programming that's captured the public's attention in recent weeks, it's The Last of Us. Based on the successful video game series, the show has been a blockbuster hit for HBO and it's already renewed for a second season. So I'm sure there are plenty of people listening here saying, what's the healthcare angle? And I'm about to tell you. It's that the plot revolves around survivors fighting for their existence in an American wasteland decimated by a global pandemic. Sound familiar? The cause of the outbreak, though, is cordyceps, a real-life type of parasitic fungi that grows on the larvae of insects, according to Healthline. However, in this show, the fungus can infect humans and turn them into zombies. Now, this scenario makes for a very compelling, if not outright terrifying TV series, but this also offers a moment of pause to ask the burning question on all of our minds – Are mushrooms going to kill us? Much has been written about the level of public concern over a situation in The Last of Us coming to pass, especially in light of our most recent global pandemic. However, it should be noted that numerous articles in the mainstream press have assessed the potential concern and downplayed the looming risk of a zombie fungus apocalypse on the horizon. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent, spoke about the interest in zombie fungi last week while dispelling myths about how much of a threat it is to the general public. Similarly, an expert at the CDC told The Hill that the idea of a pandemic spurred by fungal infections was, quote, pretty far-fetched, adding that the spread of the disease between mushrooms is not comparable to the spread of COVID. A mycology expert told NPR a few weeks ago that fungi cannot infect humans due to our high body temperature, adding that though there are more fungal infections occurring in humans, none of them are due to cordyceps. Meanwhile, Axios analyzed the implications for the newfound popularity of mushrooms, with the industry spokesman noting that they remain, quote, confident that people will continue to load their plates with delicious, nutritious, and fresh mushrooms. So as it stands right now, people can continue to enjoy some premium cable TV without worrying that the mushrooms we have with dinner are going to lead to worldwide devastation.
0: I hope no one is eating lunch during this segment. (laughs) Uh, I'm just fascinated that zombie fungi became a talking point among the public health literati. Uh, Chalk it up to our collective pandemic fears, I I suppose. I, for one, think the fear of zombie apocalypse uh, is overstated, and I will not think twice the next time I have the chance to
2: pick up some nice button mushrooms or portobello's at my local grocer. I just want everyone to know that Mark put that on the record there. So <laughs> God forbid anything happens, you can go back to Mark with that. Yes. Well,
1: well, I skimmed that Hill article you mentioned about how like that particular mushroom, the cordyceps yeah. and how they actually tend to go for ants. And the way that they basically, like, take over the ant's body and, like, control them until they die is terrifying. Um, But apparently it doesn't happen to humans, so I think we're good on that. But I I do think there's something, you know, about this fascination for zombie apocalyptic pandemics, because from what we've learned through COVID is that we're probably likely to expect more pandemics to come. They're probably not going to be mushrooms or, you know, zombie mushrooms, but... We can expect new viruses. You know, I'm I'm sure the issue of antibiotic resistant superbugs is going to come up at some point. The question is, are we prepared for them?
2: It's interesting you bring up that last point. I had uh, lunch with an uh, executive who was in town for the Medical Advertising Hall of Fame last week, and he had mentioned that exact same point where he's like, wow, concerns may be on what's the next COVID or whatever. He had pointed specifically to superbugs and how you know, antibiotic resistant drugs of that nature are really the next concern. So I, I it's fascinating to me because there'd been all this conversation about, Oh, is there going to be an appetite for these kind of like apocalyptic pandemic content following COVID? And a lot of people were like, no one wants to relive that, but here it is the number one show on TV seemingly. So I, I guess people really do have that appetite, maybe not for mushrooms, but for the, show, <laughs> for the content in general.
0: Yeah, it's 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 a little kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? You thought that you know we were all, um, you know, uh, had our fill of uh, this kind of content, but uh, apparently there's still an appetite for it. Again, yeah, not for not for fungi (laughs) or or mold, for that matter. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bouchak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mm mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.